I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present the Liturgy Guys. Hey, well, welcome to the, the next episode of the Liturgy Guys. I am so happy to be with you, boys. <laughs> Men. Except for Men. you, Jesse, and you guys. Guys, guys. The yeah, that's right. It's another episode of the Liturgy Guys. Oh, oh, darn it. Liturgy Lads. <laughs> but we get to talk about the catechism of the Catholic Church yet again. The unending treasure chest of theological richness. Yeah, that's right. There's only like 600 more pages to go. I know. I know. Yeah, so, just wait till we get to chapter two where we talk about the sacramental celebration yes. of the Paschal Mystery. Well, at least this isn't oh. as bad as uh, uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium. No, oh, that, that was, was awesome. The <laughs> best series we've ever done. It's true. Down. It's true, Chris. That may be well. better than the rap I did. I don't know. Oh, yeah. No, nothing's right. better than the rap you did. That was yeah. pretty good. Can you <laughs> repost that? There's uh, listeners uh, who don't uh, remember the rap or have never heard the rap. What's your favorite word, DMAC? Ontology. <laughs> That's like season two or three. I don't know. Yeah, I suppose we could re- rebroadcast that. Mm-hmm. But uh, but anyway, so uh, we're talking about we, sacraments today. Yeah, we're on uh, paragraph 1122. So if you're following along with your own catechism. Uh, that's where we're going to start. Sacraments keep keeping score at home. Yeah. Keep the score at home. So let's talk about sacraments a little bit, Chris. I mean, everybody knows there's seven sacraments, and yes. that's kind of where it ends. But you know me, and I know you, and we both tolerate Jesse. So <laughs> I was trying to think of something funny, and you Darn did it. it. I did it. And so uh, let's talk about sacramentality just in general, just to like warm up the brain a little bit here, right? Because there are seven mm-hmm. sacraments of the church, which I guess you could say are the principal sacraments, right? You know, you probably know that formula. The seven sacraments of the church are instituted by Christ. What else? Oh, yeah. Uh, efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ, by which mm-hmm. divine life is dispensed to us right. through the work it, of the Holy Spirit. Entrusted to the church, right. So that's what yes. we get. Christ is like, I want to give you divine life. I've got to find a way to give it to you. We're going to go through the church, through the action of the Holy Spirit, and you're going to get the, as you used to say, uh, soda fountain of uh, grace, right? Yes. Yeah, that you can do the sound better than I can. <laughs> the Dr. Fagerberg sound. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the, the fountain, right, is uh, um, uh, the open heart of Jesus on the cross. That's kind of the what gushes forth this divine life, and it flows down to us in sort of seven principal channels. Uh, that are, are proper to us. Segments. Yeah. Because right? yeah. yeah. it would not make sense to put a person on the altar every Sunday and have their blood drip over the edge of the altar, put Christ on the cross every Sunday, right? So, yeah. Well, although, gr- that's right. We, we don't do that physically, but we do right. that exact same thing you're describing sacramentally. Yeah, exactly. I heard yeah. a great podcast recently on uh, the, the, the Thomistic Institute. And it was talking about sacramental. Oh, maybe I forget where it was. Anyway, they mentioned that Christ instituted the Eucharist in sacramental form. Like the Last Supper, he said, see this bread? This is my body. So, in other words, it's not like some medieval hula hoop jumped through to figure out that Christ's sacrifice would be in the form of bread. It's the way Christ did it, because we don't eat flesh and drink blood. We eat bread. And he did it in a way that was proper uh, to us. And then it extends out to the whole world, right? Sacramental things. I can be a sacrament of Christ for you, Chris, when I heal your wounds and... 
you know. All right. Uh, Repair yeah, the cigarette burns in your rug and stuff like that. <laughs> Jesse uh, gets up in the middle of the night so Kim can sleep. He's Christ for her and his children are sacramentally. Is that right, Jesse? Uh, yeah, let's go with yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so here we are, the sacraments of the church and now the sacraments of faith. What, what makes a sacrament a sacrament of faith, Chris? Hmm, well, let's see. Uh, in the catechism, I mean, the one thing is that um, what they'll say here is that uh, uh, that the sacraments are, uh, well, you think of that, what they say is right before the ascension, when Jesus tells people to go out and teach the faith, to evangelize, to spread the faith, he does it in sacramental terms, right? So he says, go forth, uh, uh, teaching all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So yeah. one of the, the first things that the catechism means by it being a sacrament of faith is that the spreading of the faith isn't simply sort of a, I don't know, a cognitive or intellectual or, you know, kind of a learning type of thing. It's principally the spreading of the faith is a, is a sacramental endeavor. And so it's passed on and given to others, certainly by, by spreading the truth uh, and teaching the good news, but also by these, uh, these sacraments that we celebrate. So that's the, the, the first thing that the catechism means by it being a sacrament of faith. Right. And I think, too, for us Catholics, you know, it might be easy to say, well, the Bible says baptize people, so we baptize people. But the catechism makes the point that this call to evangelization, this mission to baptize, is a sacramental mission. It's not just, hey, hear the word. It's, hey, hear the word and sacramentally participate in this divine life, be uh, brought into the adopted, adopted family of God. So evangelization and sacraments go together. Yeah, I wonder, Dennis, you said earlier that um, something like... Christ gave us these in human form, things that uh, the, the, that humans can can engage in. Right, with, that are right? suitable and appropriate to us. Yeah, and, and what we're talking about here reminds me of something that uh, Dr. Fagerberg would say often is, you know, if we were angels, we wouldn't need these sacraments. Then, say, you know, I don't know if angels needed to be evangelized or something like that, but uh, they wouldn't. Evangelized yeah, is what I think how you call oh, it. Oh, that is actually pretty good. Um, that uh, they wouldn't need perhaps the sacraments that we do. So it's for them, it could just be cognitive, intellectual uh, truths. But for us, it's not simply that we need this stuff, this matter, these uh, tangible things that are sacraments to right. be a part of our uh, evangelization work. Because we're spirit and matter, right? So we get our spiritual things through matter. That's just uh, what is suitable to us. How do you get nourishment? Right. Through food, not just hearing about food. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. But there's another can way you, that can you uh, imagine that, though that would be amazing. What I just I just heard. We can't this. hear you, Jesse. Your volume's real low. Whoa! Can you hear me oh, now? Now you're back. Yeah. Never mind. Go ahead. Let <laughs> 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 me rewind say, that. No, I was just saying. Can you imagine like hearing something about a delicious food and then being like, "Oh, and now I'm full." That would be my dream to never eat again. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> Stop being offended by the flavors of food. D-Mac oh. Super Taster tastes more than you do. <laughs> All right. There's another way, though, uh, that uh, these are sacraments of faith. And that, you know, we throw this maxim around a lot, lex, lex credendi, lex arandi, and, and whatnot. What does that mean, Dennis? And what's that oh. have to do with uh, sacraments and faith? Well, the law of prayer, right, is the law of belief. So if we believed in 17 gods, we would pray to 17 gods, but we believe in one God. So therefore we pray to one God and we believe in three persons. Now, on the other hand, the next generation comes along and learns about God from the way that the prayer 
uh, has been done. So there's a correspondence between prayer and belief. Right. That? So, yeah, that's pretty good. Right. So uh, what's uh, Lex means? Um, law. law. Lex legis. Legislate. Uh, legislate. Yeah, legal. And uh, let's see. Uh, orande means uh, orare, yeah, to pray. And uh, credendi means uh, believing. Believe. Like that's where I put my keys at the end of the day. I put, oh, sorry, that's something That's else. the credenza. Ah, sorry. Oh, wait, yeah. Wrong one. Yeah. Sorry. So there's a relationship between these two. So now, Dennis, uh, which one comes first, the believing or the praying? Well, that is kind of a chicken and an egg question, isn't it, Chris? Mm-hmm. Because... Some people could say, well, God showed up and revealed himself to people in the beginning, and then people went, holy, 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 right? Mm Because all I see is holy. So the prayer follows from the encounter with God's self-revelation. So that's one way to look at it. On the other hand, if you're not the one who has that revelation, you might learn about God by praying the prayers and then coming to understand about God. So do you have a, uh, do you, what do you have, the chicken or the egg, Chris? What do you like better? Oh, uh, you know, I always used to think it was the, um, uh, the believing be- came before the praying. Because right? there's that little, uh, yep. you know, God, uh, we're supposed to know, love, and serve God. So there's something about knowledge that seems to come first. Yeah. But um, I, I don't know. I've come to think about it uh, as uh, I'm not taking a position anymore. Uh, in, in this paragraph at uh, 1124 where it throws out these terms, uh, it actually uh, gives the, the longer term, which apparently is legem credendi lex statuat supplicandi, which wow. apparently... I jotted down here. Somebody told me what that meant. Oh, it's, that's from not, Prosper of Aquitaine, isn't oh, it? Oh, yes. The old Prosper of Aquitaine. Yeah, what, a friend or a disciple of, uh, <laughs> of uh, St. Augustine, If you're following along, you'll understand why that's all funny. It's, it's in the it's 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 reading right from there. But, uh, Jesse can't stand anybody believing that I know something. But what, <laughs> but what uh, that apparently means is let the law of prayer establish the law of belief. And so Ooh. apparently it's it's uh, original, um, I don't know, uh, uh, version was kind of giving this primacy to the believing coming before or excuse me, the praying coming mm-hmm. before and establishing the believing. So and I don't know, I remember that being uh, revelatory when uh, I first uh, discovered that. Right, because it keeps going right there in 1124 and says the law of prayer is the law of faith. The church believes as she prays. So there's very interesting. uh, It doesn't really settle the question, does it? Yeah, no. Do you you remember reading? uh, I know you do, Dennis. Reading uh, Mediator Day. Of course. Pius the Twelfth takes up this very question. I don't remember that part. Which one comes first? Do you know which side he comes down on? Mm, He'd probably come. Well, since it's about the liturgy, maybe he starts with prayer. Yeah. yeah, no, he's about fifty-fifty as well. He doesn't take a position. He says this is right from this point of view, and that's right from that point of view. So he's he's pretty well balanced. You know about Mediator Day too. <laughs> Do you, Let's, for anybody who hasn't listened in a long time, that's a, uh, an encyclical by Pope Pius the yeah. Twelfth in nineteen forty-seven on the liturgy. Have we ever done a podcast on Mediator Day? No, we haven't on the all whole right, thing. I think right. we then ought I'll, to. Though. I'll say by comments on that uh, then for, for oh, that podcast. That's right. Just wait for season six for that one. Yeah. Anyway, but hey, maybe just one example before we move on from this that uh, might just muddle things. So some of you might have noticed out there that the conclusion to the opening prayer of Mass now sounds a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Doesn't yeah. say one anymore. We've talked about that before, but one would one. think it's different. Yes, <laughs> one word. Yes. <laughs> well, this would be one of those one of those examples of uh, credendi related to Arandi, right? So part of the theological explanation, you know 
which frankly I find is hard, a little hard to track, um, is that it, it could, if you prayed with that word one in there, it might make you believe that Jesus was one God and the Father is one God and the Holy Spirit is one God. And so part of the explanation is they wanted that one out of there. It's not in the in the Latin mm-hmm. text, but to uh, dispel any confusion that might uh, linger that uh, that Jesus himself alone is uh, one God, right. you know, part well, we have been trying to combat the plague of tritheism in the late, last 10 years or so, ever yeah. since the English mm-hmm. translation. Yeah. Yeah. That's anyway, Chris, thank you. But that's yeah. an example of, uh, I think, this Arande Credendi thing that it's, it matters how you pray because it can have an effect on how you believe. Or maybe even another. I've got to move on here. But remember when that Pew study came out about a percentage of Catholics who believe in the real presence of Christ? Mm-hmm. I think we talked about this, too. And uh, uh, people like Bishop Barron, you know, rightly said, you know, this just uh, this just another, uh, um, you know, example or, or, or effect of poor catechesis. But others said it's not just a, a matter of poor catechesis. The people's belief has uh, been weakened in the real presence. It's uh, more properly an example of poor Arandi. It's the law of Arandi that's been broken. And because the, you know, because priests and ministers and, and the faithful, they, they pray as if there's nothing real special about uh, the Eucharist. Well, that erodes belief after a while. Mm-hmm. So, again, just another one of these examples of the relationship of the sacraments to the faith. Right. Anyway. I was thinking recently and have been thinking, I'm very comfortable with saying Jesus and Mary all the time. And, you know, when, like when my mom was growing up, they would never have said Mary. They would have said the Blessed Virgin Mary or Our Lady. And it's just interesting. It's like calling her by her first name and not by her honorific title or, mm-hmm. our, you know, our beloved Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or at least Jesus Christ and not just Jesus, right? So we have this kind of low Christology uh, that has snuck in and it's important to say, all right, let's, let's say this, you know, let's get the full thing in there. And why does matter? Is a good segue into 1125, Chris, because sure, we speak as we believe, we pray as we believe, and 1125 just jumps in right away and says, for this reason, no sacramental rite may be modified modified or manipulated at the will of the minister or the community, right? Because if you start changing words, gestures, actions, you start changing the meaning that those things uh, convey. And so the church governs these things very carefully and uh, it says tries to have this religious respect for the mystery of the liturgy. Mm-hmm. I, I like that it even goes so far as to say that even the supreme authority of the church cannot arbitrarily change things. And so I think uh, we tend to give the church a bad name because, oh, the church moves so slow or things like that. But there's, there's a lot of intent here, and we have to be very careful how these things happen because because of this, because they mean things and there are repercussions. Yeah. I think we should pay attention to the liturgy at least as closely as we pay attention to the infield fly rule or a football <laughs> uh, call by or, a, or the liturgy <laughs> or liturgy guys podcast or Shakespeare, right? You have to use the words of Shakespeare or, you know, to, if you're going to copy a, you know, perform a play, you want to be true to the script. And how much more important is it to let these sacramental realities come through in their, in their fullness? Yeah. All right. So the seven sacraments, and I suppose by extension, the sacramentals and every sacramental aspect of the rite is somehow a manifestation of the faith, the sacraments of faith. And, you know, as you were saying, why this is so important. Sorry. 
That's you, this yeah. This is why it's so important not banging on You've the desk. You've been doing that quite a bit, uh, actually. <laughs> and another thing. There's sacraments of salvation, too, okay? And that's the next <laughs> section in uh, the Catechism at 1127. The sacraments are of salvation. Do you want to take that salvation. away, Salvation. You mean like salus? Salus. Like salve? Like health? Like... Not just uh, you're in the club or you're not in the club. I think we think of salvation that way. But think of the larger question of spiritual sickness that comes from the fall that in some way makes us not ready to be one with God. But then as you become more and more healed from your fallen condition, that's when you are ready to be with him. So it's not a black and white sort of in or out of the club. It's a uh, change in you. And that's why... 1127 talks about sacraments being efficacious. Mm. Plus, I love that phrase. They confer the grace they signify. So we have two things to talk about there, right? They confer grace that they signify. When you're talking about a salve, right? So you have a burn or a cut or a rash or right. something. You put some Diaper ointment rash. or uh, uh, some salve, something to heal the divine. The physician comes and gives you some medicine and, you know, you... Hope it's uh, 92% uh, effective or it's uh, whatever it might be, right? It might work. It might not. Uh, but this this business of efficacy at 1127, you know, Dennis, you said they confer the grace that they signify. So, mm -hmm. you get the signification right. It's not going to be simply 92% effective or 84% effective or 50-50 effective. It's going to be 100% efficacious. Uh, as it says, they are efficacious because in them, Christ himself is at work. So, this divine physician comes up and he is going to cure your maladies uh, every single time. I mean, if you let him. That, this is where the rub comes in, right? Any weakness. Yeah, if, that, we don't, that, if we don't signify properly, do we damage? Dampen the revelation of Christ through the sacrament. Yeah, yeah. That's why I think that you know these um, getting the signs right is so important because uh, this is the the means and the medium where we come into contact with God. And if, I mean, you could really warp them, in which case it invalidates the medicine. Okay, it stops the stream from the heart of Christ reaching you, or you can just kind of uh, minimally, you know, uh, you know. Uh, dampen them as you might say and you know that's when i guess they become in a certain sense less revelatory less effective you're kind of you know the, the 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 torrent that is being poured out from the open side of christ is being you know restricted down to little trickles and things like that so yeah that's why i think um any any weakness in the efficacy isn't on christ's part it's on it's on human beings part, either the ministers and how they celebrate or, you know, we can say later, it, it's on the recipients. You know, if you don't receive, well, you know, like if you take medicine, you're supposed to have it on a full stomach or an empty stomach or with milk or with water or something like that. If you don't take it right. Or you're it, supposed to fast for an hour before you take medicine. Okay. Something, <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Then it's not going to be as efficacious or fruitful for you. So... But the, about the sacraments of salvation, their efficacy is so excellent because Jesus works so well in them, unlike, you know, how we might work on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, and they have this nice patristic image here, that, talking about the Holy Spirit at work, as fire transforms into itself everything it touches. So, you know, you have your campfire, fire turns the wood into fire, it turns the kindling into fire, anything you can burn, it turns it into fire, so to speak. So the Holy Spirit transforms 
into the divine life, whatever subjected to its power. So that's the efficacy part of things, right? That it, they actually do what they uh, appear to do. And, you know, the, the part that I always really want to stick with, and it's a very Catholic thing, is they confer the grace they signify by signifying. If you ever come to the Liturgical Institute for a master's degree, you'll have that question on your comprehensive exam. <laughs> Please explain. Sacraments confer grace by signifying. Did you have that question on your test years ago, Chris? I think so. Yeah. It's fundamental it, to sacramental theology and especially the way it's done at the LI. Right. Because you could say, well, you know, if someone pours water on my head, it's not the pouring that makes it happen. It's my inner desire that makes it happen. And the, wire, the water is just this exterior thing that comes along. But no, no, no. It's the pouring through which the grace is signified, uh, affected. And uh, it's the chicken the, and the egg. It is the chicken and the egg. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, here we go. Well, now it starts talking. We were dancing around this term a little bit, but it mentions ex opere operato. This, we should put Jesse on the spot here. Oh, you're looking at it, aren't you, Jesse? We haven't put Jesse on the spot in a long time. But uh, I, know, I know the translation, uh, um, it's uh, having been done. Right. By doing it, it's done or by, something like that. Yeah, by the work worked, sometimes they say. Yes, that's what it was, yeah. By the, the work has worked. Catechism, they say, by uh, the very effect of the action being performed, which is kind of wordy version of it. But in other words, if you have matter, form, and intention, the sacramental grace is available. But on the other hand, it has to be received. And so you could have the Eucharist properly confected, but the person who's being given to doesn't want it or doesn't know what it is or uh, doesn't uh, receive it properly. And so even though it's objectively the real presence, it may not be helpful uh, for the person. That's where fruitfulness comes in. So if anybody's listening to the Liturgy Guys podcast, you might say, why am I doing this? Well, if you understand a little bit more about what you're receiving, hopefully you'll receive more and better and you'll be a great fruit tree dropping holy apples and pears mm. everywhere you go. <laughs> Remember we've talked about uh, disposition and fruitfulness before, you know, and uh, you know, why isn't my daughter like uh, Teresa of Lisieux, you know, the day after her confirmation or something like that. You know, it's because there's a certain uh, disposition that has to be there. So the, the sacraments, when, like you said, Dennis, matter, form, and intention are there, Jesus is 100% objectively delivering the goods, which is the grace uh, from his open heart. Um, but, you know, you, you got to open your mouth and your heart and your soul and your mind and things like that to receive it. And so that's, that's where the disposition comes in. And so we, if you don't... And, you know, not just say, you know, among the three of us, but me from one day to the next, to the next, to the next, you're more or less properly disposed. And so the fruitfulness is more or less uh, uh, given to you. So, yeah, uh, for, for your salvation, for your healing, to, mm -hmm. to for your anointing, for this salve to work, there's a there's a receptivity that has to be present uh, for them to be fruitful. Yeah, you know, I love to talk about the, the liturgical jacuzzi. We haven't mentioned the liturgical jacuzzi in a long time. We haven't visited the liturgical I jacuzzi. Know. You should get yeah, one get of those there. Yeah. I, would, I expect you to have one installed by the time I come up for my next That's visit. Not in, in That's not a lot of time. That's not a lot of time. It's like a week. Say you have your jacuzzi. It's got water in it. You plug it in. It's hot. And then you get in the jacuzzi in a, you know, steel-lined wetsuit. And it's like, I'm not going to feel those bubbles. I refuse to get that heat. Like, you could be in the jacuzzi. The jacuzzi is there for you, but you are not making making yourself disposed uh, to receive it. And so you, ha you can have it and not get it, or you can have it and get it. 
There you go. <laughs> so have it and get it, people. Eleven twenty nine. Uh, that talks about the it that uh, you get from the sacraments. As, <laughs> yeah, uh, we're sacraments. very loquacious. Sacramental, sacramental grace. So sacramental grace is. Uh, I mean, you, all sacraments and sacramentals and sacramental things deliver divine life or Christ life to to in a certain measure. Um, but those seven, right, are the most uh, uh, efficacious for us. And sacramental grace is kind of the divine life of Christ that is uh, given or bestowed in seven principal ways. So, you know, the sacramental grace of confirmation is different from the sacramental grace of marriage is different from the Mm -hmm. sacramental grace of anointing and the rest. But what they all have in common, see that last line at 1125. Tell us, Chris, what are they all in common? Is it makes us faithful partakers in the divine nature. And, And what do we call that? When you... Divinization, Divinization, baby, yeah. or theosis. Yeah, that's what it's. That's the end game of all of this: is to uh, become. Well, actually, it's to become God. <laughs> uh, you according, can't say that. Yeah, I know. I don't get it kicked off the podcast. Um, you know, we don't. You, you, we don't become like a, a fourth person of the Trinity or something like that. But we become. How do they say it? We become sons of God. Uh, by grace, the way Jesus is the Son of God by nature. By nature. So, yeah, that's what it's. Uh, that's what it's all. Our salvation isn't, you know, some leaving us in our wounded, deformed, depraved state, kind of cloaked over with, uh, you know, um, you know, this grace blanket or something like that. Right. No, it gets into our into our bones and sinews and transforms us by that sacramental grace to become divinized. Grace That's pretty blanket. amazing. Grace Blanket sounds like an awesome band name. Grace so. Blanket, yeah. You dated a girl named Grace Blanket, and I said, never mind. Dang it. That's a, man, Dang. what? That you was a way better joke than mine. Six years. <laughs> but I want to make that point, right? So you're a fallen, unhappy sinner. Okay, you get enough sacraments, you stop sinning. All right, that's great. You get enough sacraments that you, you become happy and stop sinning. That's even better. But take it to the next level. The fruit of the sacramental life is making us partakers in the divine nature as a living union with the Son. So, there you go. We're members of that mystical body. Christ is a person of the Trinity. And so, everything we've said for over the years about entering into the dialogue of love is what you say. But the reason you can say it is because that's who you are, right? You are a member of Christ's body under his headship. And that is what you call eternal bliss. Eternal bliss. And that, Dennis, is a great segue into this last section of the catechism, sacraments of eternal Eternal life. life. Eternal life. So, but the thing is, you know, when when you receive the sacraments, right, um, these sacraments of salvation, sacraments of faith, properly disposed, you receive their grace and you start to become partakers in the divine nature like the sun. This is not like a... um, a token that you you use later when you get to heaven. The the gist of it is is that you get to live this divine life not only eternally uh, after you die, but, but even now. But even now, absolutely, uh, and that's what's so great. So these sacraments are a foretaste of what's going to come, and they're meant to change and transform your life even today. Yeah. <laughs> So what, Chris? That means you have to get up in the morning and go to church on Sunday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does, uh, but uh, once that uh, sacramental grace, if you let it, the thing is, if if 
if you think the faith isn't working, uh, it's not because God isn't doing his part. You know, right? He's trying to feed us uh, with, with grace through that, you know, through the drinking through a fire hose, right? And so it's a matter of us being properly disposed to receive this so we can, it won't be like having to get up for mass every Sunday. It'll be like, you know, I've got to go back to the best hour of the week so yeah. I can live the, I can't the next wait. week. Yeah. Right. It's, it's like, like the you first... can go to bed with a grace blanket. <laughs> there oh. you go. <laughs> you know, we didn't touch on it, but it is mentioned out throughout this that the sacraments build up ecclesial unity, so between members of the church. And we all know how many people are angry and hating each other and talking about politics and raising all these things that are dividing, dividing, dividing. Imagine if we were all living divine life and had our, our wounds covered in salve, and then we could love each other more perfectly and, and live as a unity, this would be great even on earth, even building up the kingdom, not just as some preamble to uh, heavenly future. So, go to Mass. Yeah. Jesse. All right. It'd be worth a try. I sh- I'll try it sometime. Sounds yeah. cool. Uh, so, that wraps up this uh, this section of the catechism, and we'll, we're going to keep going here. Should we do a liturgy question? Absolutely. All right. So, uh, Dennis, you can take a little bit of a break, and Chris and I... (laughs) No! (laughs) All right. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Okay, this question comes from Julie in Dallas, and Julie says, Hello, Liturgy Guys. Hey. Hello, Julie. Julie. Julie says, My parish has recently put the tabernacle back on the altar in the main sanctuary as opposed to the chapel. While attending a meeting of the liturgical commission, one of our committee members mentioned it was not proper to have the tabernacle on the altar according to USCCB guidelines because it is in conflict with the sacrifice of the Mass. Please clarify. Thank you. You guys are awesome. Jesse, I literally laugh out loud every uh, every one of your jokes. Uh, she literally she literally said that and uh, anyway uh, whatever long story short I'm pretty awesome and you guys can answer the question yeah you're the funniest of us I'll admit that okay well <laughs> it's pretty low bar though there's but a if, if she, Chris is Chris is the funniest looking <laughs> that's true face made for podcasting mm-hmm. Well, okay, you, you were know, saying, here's, Dennis? Here's a, Julie's question doesn't give us all the information I might ask. If she were here or alive, I would say, is it on the altar of sacrifice or is it on an altar of reservation? So if it's an older church and there's an old high altar that's no longer used for mass, that is permitted to have the tabernacle there with the Blessed Sacrament reserved in it. The way it plays to look at first is um, 
Chapter 5 of the General Instruction of the Roman Missal, uh, number 315, which says, It is more in keeping with the meaning of the sign that the tabernacle in which the Most Holy Eucharist is reserved not be on an altar on which Mass is celebrated. And it footnotes Eucharisticum a Mysterium, which is the mm. 1967 instruction on the implementation of Vatican II. So, now if you're a strict legalist here, it doesn't say you may not, right? May not have the tabernacle on the um, altar. It says it's more in keeping with the meaning. Now, why would that be? If you have mass versus popolum facing the people, a tabernacle in front of you, between you and the people, is a, it would be a little funny. You do see this sometimes in the late 50s, very early 60s when they were experimenting with versus popolum. They would have these very, very low tabernacles to be like six inches high, still on the altar, so it wouldn't block the view. Um, they also like the idea of keeping the place of sacrifice and the ritual of the sacrificial action of the liturgy distinct from reservation, which is a different kind of, of thing. So what have I said here, Chris? Uh, generally speaking, you don't put the tabernacle on the altar where mass is celebrated. Now, if you're an ad orientem only parish, or you do the extraordinary form only, then you don't have the tabernacle between the people and the priest, and so it wouldn't be as much of a problem. So mm. it's never as simple uh, as you think. Any thoughts, I, Chris? Yeah, I think even if you were, uh, my opinion is if you had a freestanding altar, maybe that's the distinction I'd make. If you had a, an old high altar, and I don't think, and you were saying ad orientum uh, in the ordinary form or extraordinary form, I don't think you'd have to you know, move the Blessed Sacrament from what's there. But I think if you're celebrating ad orientum at a freestanding altar, I don't think, I still don't think you would, it's the mind of the church, you'd have a tabernacle on it, so... Right. That was called the cathedral arrangement. Even back in the 30s and 40s, um, you know, take the Roman basilicas, for instance. None of them have a tabernacle on the mm. altar under their great canopy. St. Peter's, which should be the model, right, doesn't have a tabernacle mm. on the altar. And um, so where there were a lot of tourists and a lot of visitors, the idea was that the tabernacle would be in a separate uh, chapel. Now, the funny thing is the, the general instruction that came with the first edition of the Missal gave the first option to a separate chapel and not in the sanctuary of the church. When the current general instruction came out with the Missal that we have now, it gives the first option of where to put the tabernacle, either in the sanctuary, apart from the altar of celebration. Okay, so there it's restating that again. Uh, not excluding an old altar no longer used mm -hmm. for celebration. So that's explicitly uh, permitted. And then it says option two, option B, or even in some chapel suitable for private prayer uh, adoration, but organically connected to the church and readily visible to the Christian faithful. So this is not the 1983 model where the Blessed Sacrament Chapel was down the hall around the corner next to the secretary's desk, right? In the church, <laughs> visible in the church, and uh, even if it's not in the sanctuary, and or even in my sense is Romanita, right? It's Roman language for if there's a good reason, or even you could go to the store, you could go to the park, or even you know, sit in your room all day, uh, suggests it's not the preferred option. If you have to ask where it is, it's in the wrong place, right? Well, that that's the... a pretty good sign, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, they want the sacrificial action of the liturgy to be unencumbered, generally, and then the place of reservation should be suitable for what things you do with reservation, right? Private, private prayer, adoration. And so just keeping those uh, appropriate is the principle, and that's how I would uh, live out of that principled understanding. 
All right. Well, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Uh, Chris, uh, don't uh, just don't, yeah, don't, don't even bother. bother. Yeah. He's, uh, he's bought the farm and he lives there and you're not going to be able to contact him. Uh, thank you. And God bless. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoramus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College. Now that's a podcast. <laughs>